Hello, and welcome to Sights and Sirens Back to Basic Podcast. My name is Dr. Christopher Sights. I'm an emergency physician, and I'm here with my brother, Jason Sights, who is a firefighter, paramedic, and RN. Together, we run Sights and Sirens, an emergency preparedness training company. Sights and Sirens is a National American Heart Association training center and EMS training company that specializes in NREMT exam prep. Our Back to Basics podcast was created to make what are sometimes complex medical topics easy to understand and retain for students of emergency care. Please like and follow us on your favorite podcast streaming service, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for joining us. I just completely disagree. I it's fact. Think, it's, it's known fact. I don't think that's true. Uh, it is. So I don't know what to tell you. All right. Well, mom said you were an accident. What? Um, everybody, welcome to Sites and Sirens Back to Basic Podcast. Uh, today, our sponsor is CPR for All. CPR for All is a non-for-profit organization uh, based out of Oregon that does CPR training for lay people uh, and for the community. And obviously, they try to, their best to do it for free, which is awesome. I think it's a great mission. Um, and kind of a fun fact is that they're a non-for-profit organization. Obviously, we're a for-profit organization, but we don't make any profits. So, right. yeah, it's a very similar... So uh, yeah, we share that. Right, exactly, exactly. So, uh, Jason, why don't you introduce today's topic? This is an exciting one I'm, I'm excited to talk about. So, tell us what we're going to be uh, diving into today. Huh. Diving into today. Ah, nice. See what See, I we're going to be talking about scuba diving yeah. emergencies. So, I think that we cover a lot of environmental emergencies, especially in our programs and in, in our live lectures and things like that. I would like to go a little bit more specific into scuba diving emergencies specifically, because I think it's kind of, uh, you know, glazed over a little bit and we can kind of, it takes a little bit of understanding of the science behind diving and the science behind what goes along with diving to really understand the illnesses that can, uh, that can show up and, and how then we treat them. And it's not easy. It's, I don't think it's necessarily something that's intuitive. It takes some time to really figure, it took me a long time to figure out exactly the pathophysiology behind diving. So I'm excited yeah. to talk about it today because it helps me even remember, oh yeah, that's why, that's and why we yeah, do certain I mean, things. We're, we're not going to be giving anyone a, a PhD in, in physics or pressures or anything like that. Like we're, we're going to keep it simple. We're the back to basic po- podcast. We'll do back to basic stuff with it. But hopefully after today, people can have just a little bit better of a grasp of what's going on when we're down there. And then what happens when we come up possibly too fast or in the wrong way and, and what we can experience. So sure. uh, you and I are both scuba divers as mm-hmm. a little bit of background uh you have do you have advanced or just no i just have my open water yeah so you have you your open have water your... cert i'm a i'm a certified dive master right. which just means sounds fancier than it is i can like help teach and stuff like that and then i've been through some rescue diving but that's training. why i have to call you master when we dive right or there's just other reasons. What? <laughs> no, um, you know, it's funny is I hold this dive, this dive rescue certification and I'm like, I use it on my resume and stuff. I work in a city that has no bodies of water. Like we'll never, <laughs> we will never need, besides like outside of Meyer, like the little retention box. Like, there's no reason I would ever need to put scuba gear on. But oh, that's cool though. It was it, a fun thing to get. Well, and the training careful. makes a huge difference because even when I dive with you, you can tell. I mean, like I've dove with other people before, um, but when we dive together, I literally feel safer. I mean, like I mean, you just dive in a way that you have things that you're thinking about and that are on your mind that makes the whole experience more relaxing and fun because it it obviously if something goes wrong. It goes wrong in an environment yeah. where this I'm is glad nice. you think that because we've done some really stupid stuff. Yeah, out there. Well, yeah. so, so for, for our audience, we'll just give one example. Chris and I were one time diving a sunken plane at night. It was the first time either of us had <laughs> dove at night, I think, at all. And all of my lights went out. 
And instead of being like, oh man, it's unsafe. Like let's, you can't see anything. Right. But Chris's lights were on. So I just swam to Chris, linked my arm on him and we continued the entire dive. Like, like, tandem like dove together, together like linked Which arm, is yeah. really not something that you should do ever or but I like, recommend. That was, that was a scary thing, right? Because I, I was at the back of the plane and you were at the front of the plane and I see, I just see your light. It's pitch black. It's the middle of the night. We're not diving in the Caribbean. We're diving in, you know, Lake Michigan waters you know i mean it's, it's dark and kind of murkier anyway so i only see your light at the front of the plane and then it just everything goes black just disappears yeah you just like you're just gone <laughs> i was like okay well uh, and i just so i just waited there and then all of a sudden like a little while later like in my, in my little vision of light you come swimming by <laughs> just like, and then, like i said you just like grab my arm and i'm like okay let's do it but yeah so probably not the smartest idea but with your training like i said we, we both have been diving for a while and everything was fine but you've also so real quick just to share one other story though you were diving with our dad mm-hmm. um and someone surfaced dead right I mean, pretty yeah much. yeah so it was the first time dad had ever dove recreationally so our, our father um had, had some experience as a rescue diver in his time in the fire service but rescue divers uh, at least the, the team he was on basically they would just like tie weights to themselves sink to the bottom and they were basically searching for bodies so right. he didn't have any like uh, skill <laughs> I mean, no. Did, but, no you didn't have any like practice in like buoyancy or like recreational diving like how you would dive right so he he was a little bit nervous about it because he's used to having like an o2 line that's attached to him from a boat and like constant communication through like their sweet helmets and all that so he was just a little nervous and i kept being like oh no nothing happens like it's super safe like i got right. you sort of thing i already had open water at this time so we go on our first dive and we surface and he's like about to be like, hey, like that wasn't so bad. I feel safe. And we hear like a whistle go off. And this guy had basically like had a heart attack and drowned. And they're going, is there any medics in the water? Is there any medics in the water? And we're both like, oh, no, here we go. Right, so yeah. like 45 minutes later of like grueling this, and this CPR. Guy had been, this guy had been diving. Yeah. So he had like a hard attack. Yeah. They like he had a hard, had a hard time pulling him out because all that gear. So they pull him out. I think we figured out after like case yeah. they told us heart attack, but he had like had a heart attack, drowned down there then they had pulled him up i can't imagine being in that situation but well, then wasn't he up. diving with his son too or something? yeah it was like so dad family. is thinking yeah like, like what the hell is <laughs> well and you guys and i if i recall correctly you guys did cpr for like 45 minutes 45 minutes because like, you had to wait for the hottest day of summer come. in wetsuits it was miserable yeah because you were diving so this kind of brings us to like the first thing is that whole scene consideration stuff because this person had to be flown out obviously there was no ems ground transport so yeah so there's I think when you, if you ever get dispatched to a call that's a potential water involved or scuba involved type of emergency, there's some considerations just to make right off the get go. Right. Sure. So we're dealing with um, potential like you were mentioning. There's special hospitals that we may have to go to for certain illnesses. So decompression sickness. And we're going to talk about it quite a bit. But mm-hmm. de- decompression sickness or decompression illness is one of the big concerns about diving and the only solution to that is to get into a, what's called a hyperbaric chamber and we'll talk about what that does but those hyperbaric chambers they're not at every hospital right so you have to be kind of familiar with where's your nearest hyperbaric chamber and really divers should and dive teams like if i if i go That's with you point. i have yeah. an idea of where the nearest hyperbaric chamber is like we, we try to keep track of that you yeah. do that for me too right of, of <laughs> course you see, like, this is, this is, <laughs> no, yes but like, absolutely you know, like, just like, google something really insurance fast. companies don't cover like diving injuries because it's a high risk so a lot of times like if you like by Dan, which is like divers alert network insurance and stuff like they hook you up with that kind of contact and then you can call that place mm-hmm. and they can figure it out. So there's like emergency numbers, but you should be 
hopefully doing your due diligence and know where the nearest hyperbaric chamber is. If you're an EMS agency that, you know, or, or a local hospital or anything like that, like be, be aware if you have a hyperbaric chamber, if the nearest hyperbaric chamber is in your response area, if mm-hmm. it's not, but you have a, a quarry that people dive in often or something like that in your area, you want to be familiar with, okay, we would have to helo this guy out. We would have to go to university of Michigan. You know, we'd have to go way out there to, to get it. But. Well, so that's, that's the thing. So two things. So one, you don't like not every dive emergency needs a hyperbaric chamber, sure. but like yeah. in the most extreme circumstances you would. So knowing where that is obviously is super important. The other thing is that like people may not realize this, that most of the, hospitals that have hyperbaric chambers are the larger hospitals and most of them are more inland at least in our area so like we're we're, we're based in detroit you know metro detroit michigan area so like our hyperbaric chambers are not near the great lakes yeah like and they're not there's not as many as you'd think like like some some there's some states that have like less than five Mm -hmm. in the state you know so a lot of times we're talking about law and transport well i think michigan might only have like two or three i I don't know the last i looked yeah but i don't know with the with the beaumont systems now and a lot of like we're in a little bit of a hospital belt i know like i think u of m's hospital has one beaumont has one and beaumont has one i know that for sure i should i should do some better but anyway um but yeah they're not they're not like Every hospital doesn't have one right. by any means because so, they don't get used very often. The only time they get used is for severe dive emergencies, which are rare. I mean, they're, they're, they're a rare circumstance. It's one thing that we want to talk about because sometimes it's worth practicing and talking about the things that happen less often. Talk about them more often. Right. Because, right. you know, it's actually interesting because we just did it. You just did an OB lecture last night for some of our students. And I had a dream last night that I delivered a baby because it's, you just like these things that you don't <laughs> yeah, do it's, as it's often. It's practice you know? how you play. Right. And like, right. you know, get get used to those like low incident, high risk type exactly. scenarios. Like that's why we train on those. Is so because you're not going to bump in. No one's got a bunch of experience. No one has got a bunch of experience with dive emergencies. They just don't happen that often. Right. Yeah. So, um I'm sure I'll be challenged. Internet, go ahead and challenge me on that. I'm right, sure right. someone does. But but you know what I'm saying. You know, Every it's, it's person a thing. I dive with yeah, has I, died. We're like, have, wait a second. I have saved 100 people from, <laughs> from diving. So, anyway, um, so yeah, just some of the special considerations we need to make. Do you know where a hyperbaric chamber is? Could there have been comorbidity? I mean, like, is, is there drowning involved? Because, right, if we have an emergency down below, like, obviously drowning is one of our biggest and most common concerns, you mm-hmm. know, just extricating it from there. Do I need a special team, right? You know, a basic paramedic EMT isn't trained in, hey, I can jump in there and get them out, right? So we're talking about dive teams, recovery teams, like lifeguards, you know, any of those types of situations. And... um and I think just exposures in general, we're dealing with a lot of equipment, especially with freshwater diving. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it goes hand in hand with freshwater diving. We're usually dealing with a lot of equipment that can be hard to get around. Right. So cutting through those wetsuits and well, we've got we got heat, basically heat dangers when you're sitting in the wetsuit up top on a summer day. Mm-hmm. And then you've got hypothermic dangers when you've been down there and now you're exposed to the water. So it's kind of both. And then with the less gear in, in salt water and more ocean-based stuff, well, now you have the ocean you have to deal with. Right. So now you're talking about, you know, creatures that you're going to bump into that can be dangerous, traumas, you know, major transport times just to get them out of the water. If you're diving on a reef that's 10 miles out, you know, that, that can be difficult. So just things to consider when we're getting into it. But like I mentioned before, drowning is a big concern. So before we get into specific dive injuries, I do want to talk a little bit, and maybe you can explain to our audience here a little bit about the mechanics of drowning. Because I think 
a lot of times we just look at it as, oh, it's a, it's asphyxiation. Like it's just lack of oxygen and mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. what drowning is. Or, hey, my, my lungs fill with water. We don't really understand, I don't know if you call it pathophysiology, but the pathophysiology yeah. of the drowning mechanics. So can yeah, you yeah. go into that a little bit more? No, absolutely. And, th- and I think that's sometimes that we, when we think about dive emergencies as emergency personnel, we're thinking of things like we'll get into later, like decompression sickness and pulmonary embolism, these kind of things, where the reality is that you're more likely to drown while diving than anything right. else. Right. I mean, so, yeah. and actually this kind of hits close to home. My, uh, Lindsay, my wife and I were diving in, um, where were we? Bali, Bali, Indonesia. And she's a pretty good diver, but it had been a while. And she was some really rough water and really rough sea. And she got into a situation where her mask came off and all of a sudden she's down and can't it was so like I said drowning became the concern right so it used to be that like a situation like that like you know she comes she surfaced and she's coughing of water and that kind of thing we call that a, a a near drowning then we you know we used to designate things as like near drownings and dry drownings and wet drownings and half drowning we used to have all these different des- designations we've kind of gotten away from that in emergency medicine because the pathophysiology is the pathophysiology, like salt water, fresh water. There are some nuances there, but from an emergency standpoint, it doesn't really change the fact that the thing that's happening is kind of the same. Drowning is drowning, right? Mm-hmm. So we're just calling everything drowning now. And some of that is we're doing that because when I say, oh, there was a near drowning versus someone who drowned, what do I mean by that? So like the definition can like, change. Yeah, like are they dead because they drown? And like that's what we're calling drowning? Right. Or are we saying because if you have a near drowning or you and you inhaled you some water, there's, there's still a risk of having major medical issues later and, and dying. That's, right. Them. And that's so, why we change the definitions a little bit, because if I say near drowning versus drowning, I think our head immediately thinks, oh, near drowning is not as serious. What we found, though, is that the complications that happen after the fact are just as serious in both situations. So mm-hmm. if we call everything drowning, then we approach everything from a worst case scenario, sort of like better. Right. The same sorry. standpoint. Yeah. And because definitions, the more definitions you put out there, the more confused people can get. So if I say drowning, do I mean what you mean when you say drowning? You know, what I mean? yeah. so now it's just everything's kind of drowning now, just so that people understand that. So drowning is drowning, whether you are unconscious or lost pulses or choked. All the, we're just calling everything drowning now. Um, so the, kind of the, the what happens with drowning. So there's a couple. The big thing is that hypoxia. Right. So you're you're not getting oxygen. Mm hmm. Makes sense, right? So there's submersion and immersion, where like submersion is where your whole body and head is underwater. Immersion is where just your head's underwater. Why it matters? I'm a swirly. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea why okay. it matters. Right, so there are all these like weird definitions, but bringing it back to basics, like we like to do, drowning. Ha- the the main problem with drowning is hypoxia or hypoxemia. You mean like lack of oxygen in the blood? Mm-hmm. Um, so typically, what happens, and this is kind of interesting. So when you start to drown. There's usually a panic phase to begin with, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's not like you all of a sudden like slipped into drowning and didn't realize it. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. unless you like hit your head and were unconscious. Um, so the panic phase, your body starts to breathe abnormally anyway, which becomes part of the problem when we start to try to not breathe underwater. Like you, you hyperventilate and start having these abnormal breathing patterns to begin with. Mm-hmm. So you're already lending yourself to a hypoxic state because you're not breathing the way you would normally. Sure. If that makes sense. Not that it really matters in the big scheme of things. So then what happens is obviously like we hold our breath, 
right? We're under the water. You know, we're not going to take a breath. We're conscious. But you get to this point where we have what's called air hunger, where your body no longer can tolerate you not having oxygen. It has to breathe. It has to breathe. has to breathe. Right. It's so your body forces you. Exactly. So your body forces you to take a deep breath. Well, as soon as you do that, you're submerged in water. So water enters into the, you know, larynx, airway, that sort of thing. And immediately what happens is you get laryngospasm. So your larynx just closes up. So it's like your body forces you to breathe and then realizes that, oh, this is water. Nope. And it closes the closes the hole, basically. So you don't really inhale as much water as you'd think. I think I'm going to botch these numbers and it doesn't matter for people, but just it's like, you know, three milliliters, which is a very tiny amount per kilogram is the most you can really like aspirate or inhale into your lungs. Okay. Um, So what happens is you do that, it spasms down and now you drown. Right. But what drowning is, is that it's that hypoxia. You don't have oxygen exchange. You don't have the ability to, you know, do any of your bodily functions without oxygen. You start to have then you go unconscious because your brain needs a lot of oxygen. And Mm -hmm. it's the first thing that suffers without oxygen. So you become unconscious and then you don't continue to like go unconscious and start breathing more water underwater. Yeah. You just don't breathe because you're layering spasm down. Yeah. And that's kind of, so it's not like the longer you're down there, the more water you're going to necessarily like have in your right. water. Like even if you pass out and then you like start losing breathing mechanics altogether and you've got like brain injury, like it's not like all of a sudden eventually all the water's going to get in there. Like right. it doesn't really exactly. happen. Right. It just way. doesn't happen that your body just kind of collapses that down. So two things happen. So one is your alveoli or your lung tissue fills up with water. So you can't exchange oxygen there. Remember those alveoli are those grape like clusters that are in the lungs mm-hmm. and that's where oxygen exchange happens. Right. So it's like a little bulb almost. And right. then oxygen exchange is happening through the vessels right there. So if we get water in there, we can't exchange oxygen right, or carbon dioxide oxygen. in any way. Another thing that happens is that there's something called washout. And this is a little more technical, but your your alveoli or those little air sacs in your lungs have what's called surfactant. Mm-hmm. It's almost like an like an oily substance that keeps them open so that when you br- your breathing is is easier as you breathe in and out. The water kind of washes that oils, oily stuff away and those alveoli like collapse. So your lungs almost collapse down, too. So now it would take like a lot of force and energy to blow those lungs. Yeah, it's back not just up. getting the water out of there now. Now it's reinflating the alveoli. And right. And like your that, lungs so. are not like a balloon. They're more like a sponge. So imagine that you've like wrung out that sponge and it's like collapsed down. It, it takes oh, a lot yeah, more yeah, yeah. you know, air or something like that to like span that back out. So that's the mechanism, essentially. I mean, it's just hypoxia. I mean, yeah. a little more technical telling you exactly what's going on there. And we can talk a little bit about difference between salt water and fresh water, because sometimes that shows up on EMS students exams or emergency mm-hmm. medicine students exams and things like that. We can talk a little bit about that, but it doesn't really matter. If we're trying to take it back to basics, it doesn't really matter. The mechanism is hypoxia. Yeah. And I think the, I think the big lesson, like when we talk about dry drowning and again, all drowning is drowning, but right. the, the idea behind the dry drowning thing is that if you have someone who was under and experienced a drowning like state and then you got them out and they're like feeling fine now and conscious, they, they still should go to the hospital and get a chest x-ray. Because the issue is if you have like residual amounts of fluid down in those alveoli, you can eventually go hypoxic because of the limit in oxygen exchange, correct? Right. So that's what they would refer to dry drowning because like you quote unquote dry, drown on dry land. You know what I mean? But the 
the issue is that like we watch like these lifeguard shows and stuff or like Baywatch or like water rescue and they like pull them out and they're like, oh, a little CPR. And then they pop they're like, Oh yeah. And it's like, yeah, go home to your mom. Like you did great. Like that's a bad idea. Like take right. them to the hospital, get that chest x-ray, look for that fluid. Cause they may need to get deep suctioned and things yeah. like that. And that's why we've defined drowning as just drowning because yeah. like all these people need to go the, the complications after the fact. And a lot of that goes back to like fluid shifts too. Mm-hmm. Like you get fluid shifts from the, the water being in your lungs. They all need to go to the emergency department, get evaluated, probably even admitted. There's some guidelines and I'd have to look them back up. I didn't review them for this podcast, but there's some recommendations for us as emergency physicians, how long you should watch these people for. Mm-hmm. What's the time frame for fluid to shift back into the lungs and that sort of thing. Yeah. So so real quick, I said I, I know we want to get more into the dive emergency side of things, but really quick. Let, let me just quickly explain the difference between salt water and, and freshwater drowning. Got salt. Got it. What? Hmm. <laughs> so, so because like, this does show up on exams and things like this, it doesn't really matter, again, for the sake of how you're going to treat these people. It doesn't change the management, but just having an understanding. So when you inhale or when you bring a bunch of fresh water into your lungs or into those alveoli, into your lung sacs there, right, mm-hmm. the the electrolyte balance is different between that water and your blood. So your blood has more electrolytes in it. So what happens is that water, that fresh water wants to follow it, wants to follow the the gradient, right? Wants to follow the the gradient concentration. Exactly. So that fresh water will get pulled into your vessels. So you get what's called like hemodilution or basically your blood almost becomes more water and and less electrolytes. But what happens is that that fluid does get pulled from your lungs into your blood vessels. So that's an example of like later on as your body's trying to fix that, it might push that back into your lungs and you could have problems later on. Okay. That's where like dry drowning yeah, comes yeah. in. We're like, oh, I'm on dry land. Why am I drowning? It's like, well, now the fluid's shifting back because your body's trying to balance it all out. And all of a sudden your lungs are filling up with fluid from before that yeah. it absorbed and now it can't. That's cool. I yeah. didn't know that. That's so cool. super interesting. So, but with uh, salt water drowning, the concentration of electrolytes, that salt is much higher in the lung when you inhale it. So more fluid goes from your blood vessels into that tissue, into that alveoli. So you get even more fluid in there from your body. So they get pulmonary edema or even more. So fluid maybe like worse up. stuff initially, but not necessarily a risk as much of a risk later. Exactly. So. Right. And again, when it comes to management basics of, I mean, we're treating hypoxia, asphyxiation, and the management is going to be the same, but just yeah. so you, just so that people understand kind of the nuances between those two. Yeah. Um, Nothing I can do. I'm not going to cut open the chest and. No, right. There's not like any special or, fluid or yeah. anything we can do to change sure. that. It's more of the big, Big thing we need to think about is like f- dirty water. So people who drowned in dirty water, whether it be like a polluted lake or a, you know that kind of, that's where we need to consider other things. These patients are at much higher risk of infection, bacteria, because they're not only bringing okay. in water in their lungs, yeah. they're bringing in that bacteria and stuff. So those patients can have a lot worse outcomes because Later of those other factors. Yeah, sure, exactly. Sure. So. Cool. All right. Well, I said we were going to talk about dive emergencies, so let's get to that. Sorry. Real quick. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fine. So. Again, have those considerations, kind of know where your hyperbarics are, understand that we're going to probably be dealing with near drownings and things like that. Because, you know, I think that traditionally we talk about drowning, we're talking about like someone on the surface who's like sputtering and then, oh my gosh, and then they're still near or at the surface. When we talk about dive emergencies now, we talk about people that might have ran into these issues at 100 feet, you know, so Mm -hmm. they're, they're completely submerged. They're down there. We're dealing with cold exposure, you know, depth exposure, things like that. So before we can get into the individual emergencies, and there's really only like 
three big themes you're going to see that are dive. I shouldn't say the, that are dive specific, but the ones we want to focus on. Yeah, the ones we want to focus on because there's other things as well, like oxygen toxicity, things like that. But those are kind of a little bit more, uh, I think, obvious and, and understood. These are the b- basic specific ones. We're going to talk about decompression illness or the bends. We're going to talk about nitrogen narcosis, which is something you experience when you're diving. And then we're going to talk about air embolisms, which is probably, in my opinion, the biggest threat to life. You know, the mm-hmm. biggest emergent mm-hmm. threat to life is this air embolism. And I think we think the bends because it's just what we what we attach to diving. Oh, someone gets the bends. Um, but we'll, we'll get into it. So before we can understand any of that, though, we have to understand diving science in general. All right. And don't be scared by the word science. It's pretty simple. So you and I right now, we're on the surface. We're, we're under atmospheric pressure. So there is a pressure of the environment that is pushing down on us, our tissues, our cells, everything, right? And I so, thought that was just my depression, but it's just extra. <laughs> no, that's extra. <laughs> okay. So no, we're, we're under what's considered one atmosphere. So we say the surface, we're at one atmosphere of pressure. Um, and what that means is when I breathe, I'm breathing in mostly oxygen, nitrogen, and maybe a little bit of carbon dioxide and other gases, all right? Carbon dioxide in the environment is not, it's not prevalent, okay? It's mostly oxygen, nitrogen, and some other passive gases. Mostly oxygen, then nitrogen. So what happens is when we breathe in, the the CO2 that, that happens with breathing mechanics is created in our body, right? It's the byproducts of our, our body's function. So we breathe out things. that CO2. So CO2 in our body doesn't really change in, in volume or in um, concentration. It's the same amount of CO2 in there, whether we're at depth or we're up high, right? So if I'm breathing at, it out, because we're creating and breathing yeah, it out. I'm creating it and breathing it out. I can be creating and breathing it out down there. Or I can be creating and breathing it out up here. The or concentration, the yeah, the concentration okay. isn't changing in any way. So, and, and we'll go over that in a second. The other ones we're taking with us, we're breathing it in. That's going to start to change things. So first let's, let's kick off some, some notions here. We don't breathe oxygen concentrations. We typically don't breathe oxygen concentrations when we scuba dive. We have a compressed air. It's just a tank of air that we got at the surface. We pumped it in there. We pressurized it. It's in a tank and we take it with us. It's not like people will be like my O2 bottle. It's not an O2 bottle. If it were O2, you'd be dealing with oxygen toxicity because you'd be breathing. Basically. So when you say when you say compressed air, because I think a lot of people think air is oxygen. You're talking about air as in like the mixture nitrogen, of oxygen and nitrogen and, and the CO2 and the passive We gases, took a bunch right? of this atmospheric Yeah, well, we're breathing right now. Pumped it into the, okay. shoved it in the tank, right? So there is instances in diving where people use what's called nitrox, and it is higher concentrations of oxygen, but it's still air. It's not dangerous concentration. They might put like 3% or 5% oxygen in there. They put a little bit more. And the purpose of that is so that it's easier for you to dive because you're breathing some oxygen so you can stay down longer, but only at shallower depths. And we'll talk about why. So right now we're we're breathing one atmosphere, right? If you filled up a balloon up here and then you started diving down with it, as you get deeper and deeper, the pressure is going to increase on that balloon. So the gases inside that balloon are going to get compressed and you'll see that balloon start to shrink down. And that makes sense too, because I think people understand that when you think about these movies you watch with submarines, as they get lower, the pressure, like they start to like crank, you know, it's like, like you're not only dealing with 
the pressure of the air in the atmosphere. Now you're dealing with the pressure of the water. And as you get lower, there's more water above you. That pressure is higher, higher, higher. That's yeah, what yeah. So, yeah, atmospheric pressure increases and increases. And if you want to know the, the exact math with it, about every 33 feet or 10 meters, about every 33 feet, you add another atmosphere pressure. And what that basically means is that exponentially, you're compressing this gas more and more. I have that balloon up here. I take it down to the second atmospheric mark. I take it down 33 feet. And now all of a sudden, that, that gas has been compressed to 50% of what it was. So the balloon shrinks because the concentration and the volume is going down. So now I want you to imagine that we breathe 10 oxygen right now in one breath. I breathe 10 oxygen in with one breath and I go down to atmosphere two now or three or four and I get deeper and deeper. Now I'm still breathing because I'm breathing out of compressed air in my in my backpack. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm breathing out of my scuba bottle. I'm still in one breath breathing, say, one liter of air. But instead of having 10 oxygen now, because all of those particles have been compressed, I'm now breathing like 40 oxygen. Mm -hmm. So suddenly what starts to happen at depth is we're breathing fine. Everything's good to go. We're not breathing more volume of air, but we're breathing more concentration of the particles that are in that air. Does that make sense? So yeah. now there's way more oxygen and there's way more nitrogen. And there's, there's a little bit more CO2 that's in my system that I don't need. So what starts to happen is we get too busy down there. If we spend too much time. So just let me. So like from the standpoint of the vessel, right? So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm inside the body and I'm the blood vessel and I'm exchanging oxygen and stuff. So it's like, like you said, like 10 molecules of oxygen were coming by me. And now I've got like 40 and I'm still just exchanging and doing what I normally do. But I don't need necessarily all this extra yeah, and we can go deeper into like the solubility of oxygen That's versus not. nitrogen. We won't. <laughs> we could though. No, but like nitrogen tends to just kind of like sit in the tissues. It doesn't, we don't use nitrogen. It just sits in there. And usually mm. we're not dealing with a lot of it. But as we start to get that compressed, now we have a ton of nitrogen and it has nowhere to go. Oxygen isn't that soluble. It usually has to bind to hemoglobin to kind of stay in our system. But mm -hmm. once we fill that hemoglobin, there's just extra oxygen now that we don't know what to do with. This starts to fill our systems, but we're under pressure too. So our volume is under pressure. So everything's kind of hunky-dory down there for a while. Okay. The problem that happens is now let's take that balloon. We've compressed it. We're adding air to that balloon through a through an oxygen or an air canister now, right? So we're adding volume at way higher concentrations. So there's too many particles. Now I start to surface and I start to come up. If I come up too fast... Now the volume is going to expand dramatically, and now I'm going to have all of those particles needing to try to escape. All right. So now I, if I come, if I go down to a depth with a balloon and fill it up with air at that depth, and now I start to surface, that balloon's going to pop. The volume's sure, just going to increase sure, greatly because yep. we have so many particles, and now they're all expanding. They're going to burst that balloon. So we don't want to be the, that balloon. <laughs> right. We don't want to be the balloon. But not only is the balloon expanding, but each molecule of oxygen, nitrogen, they're all expanding as well. Yes. Right. They're all almost like little balloons within a yeah. balloon that would be so us. I Let's put it this way. I breathe one, let's say, liter of air up here. I take it. Uh, let's say one breath. I take one breath of air. I get 10 oxygen from it. I know that if I take a breath down there, I get any 40 oxygen when I breathe. Take a breath. Now I skyrocket up and I get up here. 
relatively, I have 40 oxygen now, and that's now it has to expand to four times the volume. Mm-hmm. That oxygen has to escape. And what that does is it creates bubbles, and those bubbles need to be able to escape out of our body tissues. So they get lost into the tissues, they go into the brain, they do all sorts of things. So there's three things that we bump into. One is called nitrogen narcosis. Well, you know, we'll start start with decompression illness. One is called the bends or decompression illness or sickness. Okay, this is when those bubbles, because we're coming up too fast and the volume's expanding at a higher concentration, we're dealing with nerve issues, we're dealing with blood and lymph vessel issues, and we're dealing with excruciating joint pain and, and a risk of clots because all these bubbles are starting to escape. So, And when you say escape, into the tissue. Yeah. Like they have to like eventually work their way out of the tissue, which right. is they how do we get, get rid somehow. of it? How do we get rid of it? So normally we just breathe it off, right? Because right. we're in normal concentrations. Now we have so much extra that it has to it has to get going. What a safe scuba diver does is they surface very slow. You go up at one foot per second, really, about one foot per second. And then you have safety stops where you have to stop and breathe normal. So you're breathing. You give your body time to let that air escape safely. And you're getting rid of all the stuff. So your body is taking all these bubbles and things and they're eventually yeah. putting it We're into the lungs so they off. can escape off. Yep. Right. That's how that's how your body's going to eventually release these. Right. If it doesn't release it that way. It's, they will eventually just going to take time. And in the meantime, you've got all this, these bubbles right. in your tissues and things like that. And then so a safe diver, you know, they have these safety stops and then they do a, a 15 minute or a, a five minute safety stop at about 15 feet. They breathe off as much as they can. They come to the surface. They still are going to have extra, you know, a, extra concentration in there. And that's why you can't jump right back in the water and go to depth again. You got to wait. And there's there's usually a time frame before you can dive again. And we base this off of time dive tables that we look at before we go down. We plan our dive. We dive our plan and we look at what's safe to do. That's how a normal dive should go. What happens is if there's an emergency and I'll give an example. You, you said you were diving with with Lindsay. Mm-hmm. If she had gone down to 100 feet, lost that that mask, and then now all of a sudden she goes, what, what's my natural reaction? I'm going to swim up as fast as I can because I need air. She's cranking through three atmospheres of pressure. All of those bubbles are going to rapidly expand. And now we're, we're having issues of them getting caught into the joints and, and mm-hmm. becoming unsafe for us. Right. 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 Because of the concentration. So how do we fix it? Well, we're not going to take them back down to depth to like let them breathe it off. We're not going to do that. That's dangerous. We're going to have to simulate the pressure changes in a decompression chamber. Okay, so and that's why we need to take these patients and they're going to have symptoms of the excruciating joint pain. They might have neurological symptoms. Um, it's going to be pretty, you know, they're, they're going to be sick. So if we're dealing with that type of sickness, we need and they just dove, we need to take them to a hyperbaric chamber where they can go through a decompression chamber and we can decompress them over time. And so basically, it takes hours. So basically you're putting them in a, an, a hyperbaric chamber is basically putting them in a chamber and you're simulating as if you took them down. You're, took you're them increasing down, the pressure yeah. and that sort of thing. Now, not everybody needs that though, right? Like, so I'll give another example is you and I were diving just this past winter. We were doing those caves and, or their mines, but we were diving in these yeah. mines and then we did our safety stops and we came up slow like we normally do. We're pretty good about that. But then back at the hotel that night, I started getting like really bad shoulder and back pain. And I, I was like, man, what's going on? Maybe my tank was too heavy. And then I was like, oh no, like this is like, I'm like a mild version of the beds. Like I'm getting that nitrogen oxygen expanding in my tissues. It was, I mean, it was painful. And yeah. it, my body eventually breathed, breathed it up, but I didn't need to go to a hyperbaric chamber. Right. So what about people who, like I said, ne- not necessarily are in those emergent situations where they're having terrible pain or can, so does that make sense? So like yeah, in so, what situations would you, as an EMS provider, 
take them to hyperbaric chamber versus how else would you treat so them? It's, it's, it's hard. A, right? It's a hard question yeah. to answer because you know your professional statement is always going to be like this: this patient needs transport, and they should get the best of the best, no matter what. Right. right? There's a little bit of like practicality in it. Like what you were experiencing was so minor, mm-hmm. and there was no neurological symptoms involved. So we're, we're concerned about these bubbles getting into the brain and interrupting brain function. Like that's the biggest yeah. concern. Okay. Um, if you were experiencing severe pain in any way or anything like that, we'd want to move. But this is why it's normal for you to be pretty exhausted after a day of diving because your body is working to push all of this tissue, mm-hmm. all, all of this, uh, all of these cells and there are these molecules, all these gases out of your system. And it's kind of in overdrive working. And that's why it's super fun when you're diving, but afterwards you get the best sleep of your life because you're just exhausted. Mm, yeah. um, so I think, you know, as a rule, try to be familiar with, if you start, if you're there, <laughs> Then I would say it was serious enough for them to call nine one one. Well, we sure. we should probably transfer. If someone and calls nine one one for these on. symptoms, yeah. EMS should assume that hey, maybe these people need you yeah. know. And they, obviously, thing. they can call medical direction and controls. Well, hey, do you, should I take this person to this other yeah. facility? Because that could always be that can always happen later as well. If you get their pain controlled and make sure their oxygen levels are okay, and then get them to an emergency department, I can decide. Ah, you know what, this person probably should be taken to a hyperbaric chamber. Let's transport them. Yeah. So we can make those decisions together. We but I think you kind of answered the question too. It's that neurological symptom, right? Yeah. So that's the worrisome, real, real worrisome one where, hey, if they're showing signs of these oxygen and nitrogen bubbles have expanded in the brain and they're having neurological symptoms like numbness, tingling, weakness, slurred mm-hmm. speech, stroke-like symptoms, essentially, yeah. then obviously they said going to a hyperbaric chamber is going to be probably your best bet there. So this is what brings us into what I think is the most serious dive emergency that you can deal with. I just took a bunch of Percocet. <laughs> that worked <laughs> no, fine. No, you did it. Don't tell me. <laughs> yeah. So is an air embolism. Okay. Mm-hmm. So worst case scenario here is, is same, same rules apply. We're coming up. It's usually because we're coming up too fast or we stayed down too long. Right. And if we're coming up too fast, that the air is expanding, the volume is expanding. And so the concentration is needing to escape and that's going to escape through air bubbles. If those air bubbles lodge in our vessels, we can end up with an, an embolism. And we talked a couple podcasts yeah, ago episode about two. Yeah, thrombo- thrombosis versus embolism and, and what that is. But basically an embolism, it, it's a blockage in the vessel, right? It's any foreign bo- any foreign foreign body or foreign material like right. like a like a nitrogen bubble or an oxygen bubble right. that lodges in a vessel and decreases and blocks blood flow. Right. So if this nitrogen lodges in our vessel and cuts off blood flow, we're dealing with embolism like injuries. So mm-hmm. this could be a pulmonary embolism if it blocks off blood flow to our lungs. And now we spontaneously start to stop breathing or stop breathe being. I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, um, we got that. <laughs> then there's um, we can have like an embolism that would cause a stroke in the brain. Right. If we block off mm-hmm. blood flow to our brain, we could technically have an MI from this. Right. An air embolism blocking off um, a coronary flow vessel. to our heart. Yeah. Coronary vessels. Or we can have deep vein issues, things like that. Big serious issues where circulations cut off. So if that's the case, it's high flow oxygen. We got to get them to a hospital, probably the closest one so that you can work on getting that air out. And it's probably going to be in another hyperbaric chamber. Yeah. Especially for something like a pulmonary embolism or a stroke due to a dive emergency, they're going to have to go to hyperbaric mm-hmm. um, in some way, shape or form, because there's no other way for me to 
get rid of that. Yeah. They have to be taken back down to depth to shrink that bubble back down and then let the body eventually like kind of blow that off. That's yeah. what I think. So, so as always, uh, what we take away as paramedics is it's, it's not that we're doing crazy advanced techniques. It's that we understand advanced pathophysiology and then understand the simple solutions to that. So what we need to be looking out for is, okay, do they have these types of symptoms? Am I expecting an embolism? Am I suspecting an embolism? Am I suspecting decompression illness? If I am, the only thing that we do treatment-wise is, I mean, do your 12-week, do your IV, you know, do your basic care, your vital signs. We want to flow high flow oxygen to them 100%. And you might think, well, wait a minute. I thought they've got too much bubbles in them. But what we're trying to do in this is displace all the bad stuff, all the nitrogen, all the CO2, all that stuff that's in their system. So we're trying to displace that with healthy oxygen. We know we can at least use the oxygen. Hmm. And we know that it's not at high concentration or at high volume at one atmosphere. So this is safe to do. So we're going to high flow oxygen and we're going to transport to a hyperbaric chamber ready facility. Yeah, no, absolutely. Another thing, too, from that oxygen oxygen therapy standpoint is that your body is working to push these gases out. The way your body works is through metabolism, which is with oxygen. So right. the more oxygen that, that like you said, it's useful in the sense that our body's working. So giving it more oxygen is, is only going to be helpful in, in that sense. So, so there is one third right, thing that one. I want to, I want to cover just when you're down there, what can happen sometimes is what's called nitrogen narcosis. So we talked about how our body uses oxygen, but there could be extra oxygen, uh, extra concentration and our body Um, is giving off CO2 so we don't have to deal with increased volume or concentration of CO2 because it's a byproduct. Nitrogen doesn't get used in the body. So as we go down, if we had a liter of nitrogen in our our blood vessels and we go down, we're breathing air down there. And air has nitrogen. So we're breathing some nitrogen in. Now we're we're breathing more nitrogen because a breath is now taking four times the amount Mm -hmm. of nitrogen in because it's so compressed. Now we have a bunch of useless nitrogen in our system and same thing happens. It has to start going places. And if it starts getting into the tissues, especially the tissues of the brain, we start to experience something called nitrogen narcosis. And this is like getting drunk for some people. When you're down below, all of a sudden the the high levels of nitrogen that's in your system is causing you to feel loopy. And it starts with that. It starts with loopiness or silliness, or maybe for some people it's an extreme fear all of a sudden, like an unnatural fear. And it kind of depends on how your body responds to it. So some people have this happen at at two atmospheres and some people have this happen at four. It really depends. So you really have to be paying attention when you're diving. Mm. I'm always watching you to see if you're acting sillier than normal. right? And you should be doing the same for me. But those high concentrations. I'm just also I'm just naked. You're like, oh, no, (laughs) that's your narcosis. and, And that's the thing is, is my experience in teaching. As a dive master, like you got to watch this. Sometimes they get a little loopy, but loopy could be ha ha ha. Look, I took my my mask off, or I took right. I took my dangerous. regulator out, right? So constantly be kind of watching this. This is something that can happen. Um, we call it getting narked. So if you ever hear divers talk about getting narked, you know it is getting uh, high concentrations of nitrogen. You get a little loopy. It can be extreme fear, but eventually, with too much nitrogen in the brain, we can start dealing with with stroke like symptoms in the sense that mm-hmm. we're we have lack of blood flow. And, and treat, se- treatment for this is basically just going to be like if you start to see your your dive buddy or yourself, you start experiencing these kind of things is to come up, right? Is yeah. to, is to, start come, to up come up so those bubbles shrink yep. back down and you, and then let your body breathe yeah. that out before you try to go down. Exactly. And really the recommendation is if you ever get to that point where you're, you or your partner is experiencing symptoms of nitrogen narcosis, just stay up. You know what I mean? Like probably don't like yeah. go up and then try to go back down. I mean, yeah, you, know your limits. Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't get back down there. You know, they, 
you're, you're pretty much done for the day, right? I actually Come think back to when time. we were diving those mines. So this past winter, Jason and I dove these mines where they're... Well, what kind of mines were they? I forget exactly. It was it was Bonterre mine, it's called. Yeah. But it's basically, uh, I don't know what, what I don't they were kind of, But anyway, it was this huge, they pumped all the water out of this mine. This mine had been going on active for like 100 years. And then they abandoned the mine. They didn't need it anymore. So they just let it fill back up with water. So now you can dive through these mines and mine. Sh- and it's dark and it's it's super cool. But it's, like It's cave diving and yeah, it's sweet. It's really cool. <laughs> but I remember, I actually been thinking back now and I remember at a point where like I got real panicky and I, I I thought to myself like, well, it's, you know, it's dark and it's a cave and, and I was able to rely, but I'm wondering now if maybe I was experiencing, you know, yeah, you were saying that fear component. And that's half of it is just going and equipped with the knowledge that, yeah. Hey, this can happen to me. And if I start feeling some way that feels off, I need to be able to just recognize something's wrong. And what's the solution to that? Come up slow. You yeah. know, it's yeah. as simple as that. Exactly. So, cool. So that covers what we, what I wanted to cover today. Just to review, we talked about scene considerations when we're dealing with dive emergencies. We talked a little bit about the mechanics of drowning and why we don't really specify different types, dry drowning, wet drowning, partial drowning, right. and all that stuff. Drowning is drowning. Drowning is drowning. We talked about some diving science. We understand now atmospheric pressure, how gases become compressed as we go deeper and how that affects not the volume of the of the gas, but the concentration now that I'm breathing at depth. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, how we would decompress naturally in a dive by coming up slow and, and doing safety stops. And then we talked about three major dive emergencies, one being decompression illness. That's that extra gases that are expanding rapidly and now escaping the system. They can get into the tissues, cause things like joint pains, neurological issues, um, blood and limb vessel issues. And then we talked about air embolisms. If one of those air bubbles lodges and cuts off circulation, big concern. And nitrogen narcosis, where when you get a little bit loopy going going down for too long mm-hmm. and, and hanging out down there. So Yeah, excellent. No, great. So again, you guys, um, just to a reminder, this podcast will be available for continuing education credits for EMS personnel uh, next month. So every month after the podcast release, those will be available on American CME's website for uh, continuing education. This one for sure. I mean, we've covered a lot of really good pathophysiology and stuff here. So this will be available there. Uh, Once again, our sponsor today is CPR for all uh, doing some great work there. So we appreciate them uh, being our sponsor today. But thank you guys for uh, taking the time and we will see you next time. Stay sweet. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're an EMT or medic student or an advanced EMT student or an instructor of those students, we have a program just for you. With Sights and Sirens NREMT prep program, you get video lectures over 15 hours of really vetted, great content to help you through your program and help you prepare for the test. Check it out at www.sightsandsirens.com.